someone tell John King to warm up that magic wall? He's in for a busy night. The lead starts right now. The day before Election Day and last chance for candidates to make their pitch, the big events signaling the races to watch. Plus, where some early ballots are already being challenged in court. Also a victory lap before Election Day. In a CNN exclusive, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has big plans as he banks on his party winning control of the House. And another CNN exclusive, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi revealing how she learned her husband had been attacked and how it's been agony for her entire family. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper and we are officially in the home stretch. Here in a little more than 12 hours, the midterm campaigning ends and Election Day voting begins. More than 41 million voters have already cast a ballot, eclipsing early voting numbers from 2018. Today, candidates are racing around. They're trying to get face time with the people that they hope will become their constituents. President Biden and former President Trump are both on the campaign trail today. Biden heading to Maryland tonight while Trump will stump in Ohio, hoping to energize their respective bases and sway any last-minute swing voters. But ultimately, you, the voters, will decide who controls the House, the Senate, your state's elections and laws, and who will be governor in 36 states. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian here to help us prioritize what to watch for up and down the ballot. So, David, let's start with some of these key East Coast House races to watch earlier in the evening in places like Virginia, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Yeah, these are some keys, tea leaves, that I'm going to be reading early on. This is the empty map, right? It's going to fill in tomorrow night, Brianna, as votes start coming in, 435 races up for grabs. I want to show you in Rhode Island, um, just an unexpected competitive race here in the second congressional district. Joe Biden won this congressional district by 13 percentage points just two years ago. But Republican Alan Mung, Seth Magaziner, the Democrat, they are in a very uh, close election there. So watch that. In Connecticut, next door, in the fifth congressional district out here, you have the Democratic incumbent, Johanna Hayes, against George Logan. Uh, Democrats are so worried about this district in blue Connecticut that Vice President Harris was there campaigning. Joe Biden won this by more than 10 percentage points. And then down in Virginia... Uh, Abigail Spamberger, she was one of the majority makers in 2018 in the 7th Congressional District. This district was redrawn, Brianna, to become a little more Democratic, actually should benefit her. Joe Biden won it by more than six percentage points. If Abigail Spamberger falls to Yesley Vega in this district, that will be a telling sign that Democrats are in for a tough night. Yeah, certainly will be. So let's talk about Pennsylvania and specifically suburban women in the Philadelphia area. Yeah, so I'm going to flip to the Senate map here. There are 35 Senate seats up for grabs. Again, it's blank now. It'll fill in when the votes come in. But if we go into Pennsylvania to that crucial race between Fetterman and Oz, one place I'm going to be looking are these four collar counties right around Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs. And specifically, I am going to be looking at female voters there. We looked at the exit polls from the 2020 presidential race. Among female voters in those four collar counties, Joe Biden won them 62 to 38 against Donald Trump. I'm looking to see if Mehmet Oz can increase, overperform what Donald Trump did with those female Philly suburban voters. That'll be a telltale sign. And then the Latino vote in Arizona and Nevada will likely prove more important than ever. And we've, ha- we've been reporting there, David, that Republicans are making gains with Latinos. Are Democrats at risk of losing their edge with this voting bloc? Yeah, 
critical word they're losing their edge. I don't know anybody's predicting that Republicans are going to win the Latino vote, but they are digging into the Democratic advantage among this key constituency. Nevada, one example, Catherine Cortez Masto there, and in Arizona. And I looked at both states in the 2020 exit polls. And again, you see here, it was very similar in Nevada and Arizona among Latino voters just two years ago. Joe Biden was beating Donald Trump 61% to 35 in Nevada, 61% to 37 in Arizona. If this gets much closer, if Adam Laxalt in Nevada or Blake Masters in Arizona can really dig into this Democratic advantage, that could be a, a very problematic development for the Democratic candidates there. A record number of election deniers are on the ballot this cycle. I mean, that's a big theme that we're seeing here. What are you watching? Yeah, I mean, specifically in Arizona is one place to really watch that. Carrie Lake, you know, an election denier, is running for governor there. Uh, perhaps uh, might actually win that governorship. So is the Senate candidate, Blake Masters, the Secretary of State candidate. So the statewide Republican nominees in Arizona, it's sort of ground zero for election denialism. Watch to see how those elections go, because it'll tell us a lot, perhaps, about how future elections in Arizona are conducted. All right, David Chalian, thank you so much sure. for that roadmap. Two men have outsized potential to influence tomorrow's vote, President Joe Biden and his predecessor, Donald Trump. CNN's Kristen Holmes is in Vandalia, Ohio, where former President Trump will take the stage yeah, in a few you. hours. And CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond is traveling with the president in Bowie, Maryland. Uh, Jeremy, what's his closing argument there? launched his midterm campaign effort in the state of Maryland 75 days ago. And the closing message that we're going to hear from him during this election eve rally is largely the same core message that he delivered uh, 75 days ago uh, in about 20 miles from here in another part uh, of the state. And that is that th th these midterm elections, according to the president, are a choice rather than a referendum. But we have seen some changes, particularly in the final weeks of this campaign, as voters have signaled that the economy and inflation are their top concerns and polls have showed that those issues are driving voters towards Republicans. We've seen the president put a bigger emphasis on those economic issues, particularly at the top of his stump speech, whereas before it was maybe further down. At the top before, you might have heard about abortion and democracy. Now you're hearing the president drive home this economic message. He's also driving home that contrast, sharpening that contrast with Republicans. And Biden advisors tell me that that's largely thanks to Republicans, laying out in clearer terms what they would do if they take back the Republican majority. Uh, that is, according to a Biden advisor, the biggest thing that has changed uh, in the president's speech over time. Uh, now, Maryland was selected in part because it is where the president uh, delivered his opening campaign message, but also because Democrats are expecting that Maryland will be a bright spot in a night that could otherwise turn very dark for Democrats as it relates to Congress. That's because Democrats here expect to flip the governor's uh, race uh, with the Democrat expected to win. And, and Kristen, former President Trump is in Ohio to campaign for the GOP Senate candidate there, J.D. Vance. But sources tell CNN that Trump is actively discussing an 11th hour surprise announcement. What are you learning about this? That's right, Brianna. Well, multiple sources have told us that in the last several days, former President Trump has floated the idea of this election eve night presidential announcement for a third term. This is something that he has been weighing for quite some time. Now, these sources do say that this is not set in stone. And just moments ago, I talked to two people who are incredibly close to Trump who say they have not, they are not aware that any firm decision has been made. Now, as we have reported for weeks, Trump is eager to announce a third presidential run. The timing was the big question here. 
what we are looking at is the potential of him getting up here and announcing that run while he's sitting here with his hand-picked candidate. Now, he had tried to announce or wanted to announce before the midterms, but was convinced by people close to him that was a mistake, that if Republicans didn't do well, he would be blamed. But sources tell my colleague Gabby Orr he believes he could announce tonight and not be blamed because the advertising window is closed, meaning that they couldn't actually put up any ads linking him to these candidates. I will note one thing. Ohio was always a place that they were looking at for this third presidential announcement as a state. He flipped red and won twice. But again, there's nothing set in stone right now. It's all speculation as we wait and see before he takes the stage. Nothing set in stone. All right, Kristen, Jeremy, thank you to both of you as you follow uh, Trump and Biden tonight. All right, Kristen, let's discuss this. Okay, a potential Trump announcement of a a run, but also either way people are talking about it because he's put it out there, right? (laughs) Or his folks have put it out there. What's the impact of this on this election? It might be pretty minimal, if only because so many ballots have already been cast and so few voters at this point are genuinely undecided. But I do suspect that if it hurts anyone, it's Republicans just a little bit. If you were the kind of voter who might have voted for a Republican in any other year, but Donald Trump just Mm -hmm. isn't exactly your flavor of Republican. Him being a big number one headline in the news on Election Eve just reminds you of the things you might not have loved about the last couple of years of the GOP. Uh, But with that said, I would expect any impact to be relatively minimal. Well, and if you're thinking about it, these races will be won on the margins. And in places like Nevada and Arizona and states that Trump lost, you are the Republicans in those states. You do not want Trump to sort of make an 11th hour announcement that could potentially play into your race. I mean, nobody would want that, right? And so I do think it hurts these Republicans, especially in these states where they need to flip them in order to sort of have control of the Senate. I was just going to say at the margins to Sochi's point, Remember that Donald Trump was the guy who was during the runoffs in January 2021 was saying the election is rigged. There were people saying don't vote. The margins matter, you know, and he does like him or hate him. He has the ability to attract news coverage like very something we've rarely seen before. So even at the margins, like in Nevada, for example, we think that race is Nevada Senate. We think that race is almost tied. Adam Laxalt and Catherine Cortez Masto, you know, couple hundred, couple thousand votes one way or another can make a real difference. You know, when these races, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, they are close enough that a thousand here, a thousand there matter. Yeah, and in fact, I think we're already, his shadow is already part of this election. You know, normally, if you're looking at the level of presidential disapproval, discontent over the economy. 80% of Americans said the economy was only fair or poor in an NBC poll. Um, That would argue for a blowout for the party out of the White House. But I believe we are in a double negative election where you have a majority of voters who believe that Biden has not performed adequately on crime, uh, immigration and inflation. But you have pretty close to a majority that is uneasy about what the Trump era Republican Party means for their rights, their values uh, and democracy itself. So on balance, the, the verdict on Biden is probably going to weigh more than the verdict Uh, on Trump and the Trump era Republican Party. But it does, I think, create an opportunity for Democrats to avoid what the models would tell you you could expect with this level of discontent over the president's performance and the economy. So when we look at who's on the ballots here across the country, there are a large number of election deniers, right? So CNN found at least 22 candidates for governor. Mm -hmm. 19 for Senate, 12 for Secretary of State, 10 candidates for Attorney General who have either denied 
the results or cast doubt about the results of the 2020 presidential election. So what are the implications of that, Ron? This is going to be the most significant long-term implication of this election. I mean, we're, we're talking about it in normal partisan terms on how many seats Democrats lose in the House, whether Republicans take control of the Congress. I think what historians will remember of this election is that it provided a beachhead inside the electoral system to a large number of candidates who are untethered to the traditions of American democracy as we have known it. And it is going to take us into an unpredictable new era. No one can say exactly what it's going to mean in Arizona or Wisconsin uh, if full-scale election deniers are in control of the election machinery in the roughly half-dozen states that get to decide everything for the country, get to decide Senate control, get to decide presidential control. But the, the odds are high that this is going to lead to some kind of crisis sooner than later. Kristen, how are Republicans who want traditionally Republican policies in place but are not fans of election denialism making sense of this even as they are hoping to win over a majority in the House and Senate? Well, I think they're saying that when it comes to the issues that matter to them, they're not focused on those sorts of things. That Whenever you've talked to any of these Republicans who are not in that kind of election denier camp, if that's the, the term we're using, they always want to pivot back to the issues that they're focused on, the policies that they want to change. They're not talking about, and then I want to change X, Y, and Z when it comes to election laws. And I do think that's, that's going to be an interesting distinction, right? Are these folks that just, from a rhetorical perspective, say, I'm worried about voter fraud and so on and so forth, or are they actually, upon assuming office, trying to make changes? And are they changes that are not just, say, rolling back COVID-era changes to election law, but actually going further? Yeah, and I absolutely think that there's a lot of talk about why Democrats aren't talking more about the economy. And I do think that they are. But the reason that they're talking about threats to our democracy is exactly what you laid out, which is that there are election deniers out there that are on the ballot that could potentially be elected. So I think it is right for President Biden to go and address the nation and talk about the threats to our democracy. He also has to talk about the economy, which he is doing. But we need to do both. And that's why you've seen Democrats do that. We do have a lot of time together today, which is so (laughs) lovely. So stick around, if you will. We have so much more ahead to discuss. Ahead, a judge's ruling today when a Republican tried to call foul on a group of absentee ballots in Michigan. And as you vote, what to trust as fact, what to ignore as a lie, the spread of deliberate misinformation in this election, and efforts to shut what's not true. We are back with our politics lead. The first polls closing are just a day away, and several key swing states could be make or break for Democrats' chances to control the Senate. CNN has reporters all over the country, first to CNN's Jessica Dean, who is in Pennsylvania, where the race could decide it all. After months of campaigning. I believe that we are the land of opportunity. Tell them that we are the land of plenty. And tell them that I will bring change to Washington. You know, I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. Oz is running to use Pennsylvania. And tens of millions of dollars in ads. I got knocked down, but I got back up. Dr. Oz knows we can work together. The hotly contested, closely watched Pennsylvania Senate race is closing out its final hours. Democratic nominee John Fetterman, who suffered a stroke in May, framing his closing argument as a stark choice between himself and Republican challenger Mehmet Oz. I've spent my career fighting for people. Oz has spent his life taking advantage of people, making himself rich. 
I've taken on the powerful, been different. Oz will only work for himself in Washington. While Oz, who's endorsed by former President Donald Trump, has pitched himself as an independent voice. Politicians point fingers. Doctors solve problems. Together we'll stand up to extremism on both sides and bring balance to Washington. In a sure sign of just how critical this race is to both parties, three presidents hit the trail in the Commonwealth over the weekend. President Joe Biden and former President Barack Obama rallying voters in Democratic strongholds. Listen, it's easy to joke about Dr. Oz and all these quack remedies he's pushed on TV, but, but it matters. It says something about his character. If somebody's willing to peddle snake oil to make a buck, then he's probably willing to sell snake oil to get elected. I know Pennsylvania well, and John Fetterman is Pennsylvania. He is Pennsylvania. And former President Donald Trump appearing in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, to boost Republican candidates. Oz briefly appeared on stage with Trump, even as the celebrity doctor continued to position himself as a moderate. Pennsylvania desperately needs Dr. Oz in the U.S. Senate. He could very well be the tie-breaking vote, as I said. Inflation, crime, abortion rights, threats to democracy. These are some of the issues driving this race. It'll be the decision of Pennsylvania voters, whether it will be for Oz or Fetterman. Wow. And again, it's projected to be quite a tight race. And with that in mind, Brianna, uh, there was a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that said that any of the mail-in ballots that ha didn't have the secrecy envelope or didn't have a date on the outside could not be counted by election officials. So there's about 3,400 of those in, in Philadelphia. There's about 1,000 of them in Allegheny County. Those counties have started to reach out to those voters. They've released a name saying, please come fix your ballots before Election Day to make sure we can count them. Uh, in Monroe County, Pennsylvania, they're doing the same thing. But the Republican Party there had sued to get that voter outreach to stop a judge saying that they can proceed forward and letting people know that they can come uh, adjust those ballots, sign the outside, do whatever they need to do in terms of uh, remedying well, that missing information so their vote can be counted tomorrow. Brianna, yeah. those are a lot of votes there. Jessica Dean, live for us in Pittsburgh. Thank you. And to Eva McKen now in the critical swing state of Georgia. So Eva a record-breaking 2.5 million Georgians have already cast their ballots there. What's the mood on the Walker and Warnock campaigns here in these closing hours? Well, Brianna, as you can imagine, both campaigns really projecting confidence. Uh, Walker really leaning into his background as uh, not a standard politician. Uh, Senator Warnock arguing that this contest is really about who is prepared uh, to serve in the United States Senate. Uh, notably, though, Warnock seems to be talking more to his supporters about avoiding a potential runoff. He's up with a new ad uh, where he's standing in a football field uh, with competing scores, basically driving home to his supporters, please bring me over that 50% to avoid that December runoff if neither candidate gets above 50%. Also of note, Herschel Walker and Governor Kemp not campaigning together today. Governor Kemp having a unity uh, rally. Governor Kemp, of course, uh, competing against Democrat Stacey Abrams. Governor Kemp and Herschel Walker will both be in Kennesaw, but they will be holding separate events. Meanwhile, Senator Warnock, he's going to be campaigning here at a church in Columbus this evening. Brianna. All right, Eva McKendon, Columbus, Georgia, thank you. Next to CNN's Miguel Marquez, who is in Detroit. And Miguel, tell us what we're learning about absentee ballots there that Republicans have called into question. 
Yeah, there was a, a lawsuit by a Republican who was running for Secretary of State here, a judge issuing a scathing denial of their request to stop absentee ballots here in Detroit, just Detroit, from being cast. They called into question those ballots that had been requested by mail, said that they had to be either requested in person or vote in person. But I can show you, even now, after 4 o'clock here, we're at Department of Elections, all these cars here are waiting to drop off uh, absentee ballots in this ballot box here. They were collecting them earlier when they were open. And even the people you see here are now waiting to either try to vote or to try to register to vote here in Detroit. Very, very high uh, voter turnout. That's judge saying that 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 lawsuit was basically a false flag and wouldn't stand for it, saying it would have invalidated tens of thousands of votes here in Detroit. Rihanna. All right, Miguel Marquez in Detroit. Thank you. I want to bring in CNN's Sarah Seidner, who is in Arizona there in Maricopa County. Sarah, this is shaping up to be an election about elections. What are you hearing from voting officials there? Yeah, so they've already counted in this county more than 800,000 votes. Uh, one of the issues here uh, is there is concern about safety. They have changed some things at some of the voting centers. There are 223 of those voting centers in the county. Uh, and they are saying, look, we are seeing large numbers uh, of people who have come out to vote or have mailed in or put their votes uh, in ballot boxes. Typically, about 85% of the vote here, they vote early. Uh, and so they are going to have a huge number uh, of those voters already counted by the time that the election happens. We will be watching all of that. We're also here waiting to hear from the sheriff and the board of supervisors, uh, as well as election officials, about false narratives about voting uh, and the election that have been spread or that they're worried about will be spread. So they're trying to knock that down as soon as possible. Sarah Seidner in Arizona, thank you to you and to all of our teams across the country. Next, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi revealing how she learned that someone had broke into her home and attacked her husband. It's an interview that you'll see only on CNN. We're back with a CNN exclusive. In her first interview since the brutal attack on her husband in their San Francisco home, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi talks about his recovery with CNN's Anderson Cooper, how she first learned her husband had suffered a skull fracture from an intruder, and about Democrats' prospects in tomorrow's midterm elections. Here's a preview. I was sleeping in Washington, D.C. I had just gotten in the night before um, from San Francisco. And the um, I hear the doorbell ring and think it's five something. I look up, I see it's five. Who, they must be the wrong apartment. No, it rings again, and then bang, 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 bang on the door. So I run to the door, and I'm very scared. I see this Capitol Police, and they said we have to come in to talk to you. And I'm thinking, my children, my grandchildren. I never thought it would be Paul because. You know, I knew he wouldn't be out and about, shall we say. And so um, uh, they came in at that time. We didn't even know where he was. And you can see more of Anderson Cooper's exclusive interview with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tonight on AC360 at 8 Eastern here on CNN. And we're back now with our analysts and commentators. Uh, Chris, what's your reaction as you just hear what is part of that yeah, interview? It's harrowing. Um, I mean, I think we all put ourselves in that situation. A door knock or a phone call at 5 o'clock in the morning, your thought goes to exactly what her, her thought went to. I, you know, I think that 
at least part of the reason where we, we are where we are is because we forget that politicians are people. I know that's odd, but they have families. They have interior lives. Uh, if that happened to us, it would be hugely affecting. And I think it was hugely affecting to her. And, you know, we, we also played uh, her talking about her future and how this impacts her future. Obviously, her future is a little bit up in there. We don't know if she's going to remain speaker. Will she stand as minority leader? She did last time. I don't see how this couldn't. I mean, again, I, I selfishly think about my own life. And if something like that happened, it forces you to reexamine your priorities. You know, what stands out to me is sort of just the human response that I think anyone would have talking about their loved one mm-hmm. being attacked, but also how it stands in contrast to the reaction that we've seen from some Ugh. people, right? When it comes, it's either been a sort of check the box condemnation, not the kind they would have if it was someone in their own party, or some folks either, you know, who are officials in the Republican Party or they are associated with it have joked about it. Yeah, you know, um, we all live in the day-to-day and things change so incrementally, but you step back half a step. Yep. This is a very different country than it was when Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015. I mean, if you look at the level of both actual and threatened political violence up and down our system, local election officials, public health officials, education officials, members of Congress, all the way up to the speaker and her husband, there is a level of political violence that is integrating itself into our civic life that just has no precedent. Maybe the Jim Crow South, you know, where there were constant threats against uh, black people to keep them from voting. But we are now seeing this routinized. And, you know, experts in this world, Julia Kayyem, Elizabeth Newman, will say that the single most important thing when political violence takes root in a movement is for the leaders of that movement to unequivocally denounce it. And we're just not hearing that. And we have the opposite. Just to add, we have the opposite of that. We have Donald Trump sort of, you know, okaying it. Well, I want to play, let's play this first. This is President Trump appearing to mock the attack on Pelosi's husband during a Florida rally yesterday. Crazy Nancy Pelosi. By the way, how's she doing lately? How's she doing? I'm curious, when you're doing focus groups, Kristen, do you get a sense... I mean, what do you see from people about what is acceptable to them? Um, And and I'm sure it's on either side. This inability to have sympathy for someone on the opposite side of the aisle when it comes to something that clearly people should. Well, people are able to recognize that if they have a family member or friend who disagrees with them on politics, that there's that level of humanity, there's that connection. But it's when it's somebody that you only know from television, that it doesn't feel like a real person anymore. And that's what allows these really toxic beliefs and emotions to just metastasize in so many people. Um, and, and, And there's also the, well, but the other side does it, that always happens. If I did a focus group of Republicans today and said, Shouldn't we condemn this? I guarantee you they'd say, well, gosh, people just forgot that there was someone who showed up outside a Supreme Court justice's house with, a, with you know, and the cops had to arrest him and he had weapons and nobody cared about that. Why don't they care about it when it happens to our side? That's the other piece of this kind of doom spiral that lets this behavior, this violence get normalized and means that decent people, they don't want to run for office anymore. They don't want to even step up for local, uh, you know, office, you know, any sort of thing that puts you in the limelight could put you in harm's way. And that's going to be really toxic for our democracy as all well. All right. I'm going to have you all stick around. We have much more to talk about next. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, his plans, if his party wins the majority and what he said when asked if he thinks he'll be the next Speaker of the House. Thank you. 
We're back with another CNN exclusive this election eve. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy sitting down with CNN's Melanie Zanona to outline his vision for the GOP agenda should his party win control tomorrow night of the House. And he's sounding pretty confident they will. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy is promising to pursue an ambitious agenda if Republicans win back the House on Tuesday. I think the first thing you'll see is a bill to control the border first. You've got to get control over the border. His closing message, a day before the midterms, addressing the falling economic outlook and surging prices. First thing we're going to do is make sure an economy that's strong. You've got to make sure that the new regulations that are adding to inflation has got to get curved back. Then you've got to make sure America's energy independent. If you lower the price of fuel, you also lower transportation costs and others. But McCarthy also has to keep an eye on the MAGA wing of his party and secure their support to propel him into the speaker's office. How confident are you that you have the votes to become speaker? Well, we've got an election Tuesday, two days away. Uh, I know all the pollsters said last time we'd lose 15 seats and we ended up beating 13 Democrats. So um, we're going to work and we're going to run hard. And if we win the majority, I'll run for speaker. But do you think you will have the votes for speaker? I believe I'll have the votes for speaker, yes. One way of avoiding potential obstacles from his own party, elevating some of his more controversial members into positions of power. Marjorie Greene, is she's going to get reelected. She's going to have committees to serve on. And on, over, on oversight, though? Would she's going to have committees to serve on, just like every other member. And on the question of investigations and whether impeachment is on the table. And you know what's on the table? Accountability. We will hold the rule of law and we won't play politics with this. We'll never use impeachment for political purposes. That doesn't mean if something rises to the occasion, it would not be used at any other time. Now, McCarthy declined to predict how many seats he thinks Republicans will pick up in the House on Tuesday, but he did express confidence that it will be enough to regain the House majority. And he's also expressing confidence that he's going to be able to get the votes to become Speaker. Of course, in 2015, he was denied a bid for the Speakership by the House Freedom Caucus. But he says this time around, he's going to have support of the MAGA wing, as well as former President Donald Trump. Brianna. Melanie, thank you. We'll be watching for that. All right. So he said anything over 20 seats would be a red wave, Kristen. Is that a wave? Is that a mandate? I think that counts as a wave in this sort of year. And part of why it counts as a wave is let's think back to an election where Republicans undisputably had a wave. 2010, that was the Tea Party year. They were in such a deficit heading into that election that you could conceivably pick up 60 some seats. And and that was possible. And that constituted a wave. This year, they're so close to a majority already that they don't need 60 seats. They don't need the wave to crash in big for it to be enough to give them that majority. And that's all that counts. What do you think? I mean, I think that it's going to be extremely hard for Democrats to maintain the House. But I think that what's interesting about that interview is he was focusing a lot on the border. He was actually on the border Mm. where he talked a lot about how he wants to strengthen the border. The reality is, is that the Border, both sides, both parties will tell you that what's happening at our border is broken. It is a problem for every president. The reality is, is that he's not coming up with solutions that's going to fix it. It's just going to cause chaos. And another thing he mentioned, he talked about repealing the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And that, I mean, if you are, you are the party in power that is going to take away you know, lowering prescription costs for families, that could end up hurting you at the end of the day. Just just quickly, one one thing that we know is going to happen, we don't know a lot about what's going to happen tomorrow night and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. One thing we know is that Joe Biden will still be the president of the United States for two more years. I mean, when when you hear all this talk, I think it has to come with a grain of salt, which is, yes, Kevin McCarthy can put forth, if they have the majority, they can put forth an immigration bill. But at the end of the day, if there's going to be anything done on it, 
It's going to have to be, my, sorry, my notebook is rebelling against me here. It's going to have to it's be done. Me. Yeah, it's attacking me. It's going to have to be done with Joe Biden. Like, yes, Joe Biden will probably be incentivized to do more if Republicans do control it to get something done. But all of this talk, like, just remember, Joe Biden is president for two more years, no matter what happens tomorrow night. Yeah. Ron, you have a new piece, a really interesting piece in The Atlantic, where you're laying out what a Republican control of Congress would look like. You write, quote, they will likely begin a project that could reshape the nation's political and legal landscape, imposing on blue states the rollback of civil rights and liberties that has rapidly advanced through red states since 2021. Yeah. Lay this out for us. Yeah, we've seen extraordinary offensive since 2021 across the red states, really rolling back what people call the rights revolution that began in the 1960s, nationalizing more rights and reducing the abilities of states to constrain them. Since 2021, we've seen red states restrict abortion, uh, act on voting, restrict LGBTQ rights, classroom censorship on how teachers can talk about race and gender uh, and sexual orientation, uh, eliminate any requirements for uh, permits for, for concealed carry. And this has spread almost completely across the 23 states where Republicans have unified control with much less attention. There have been Republicans in the House and Senate who have introduced bills to nationalize each of these initiatives and, in effect, to impose the red state regime onto blue states, onto, on abortion or on voting or on LGBTQ rights. And I think what you're going to see in the next two years, because Biden is still president, <laughs> is the off-Broadway stage of this, where Republicans are going to test out what they can build support for in their coalition, in their caucus, and work toward it. the next time they have unified control. Yep. One of the key fights is going to be how much of this red state regime can you impose on California, New York, Illinois, and other blue states? Yeah. Have Democrats effectively communicated that to their constituents? Well, I think it's fast forward to 2024. To your point, yeah. President Biden is still going to be in office he will serve as a stopgap. He will say, you know what, I am. I will not allow this legislation to pass. But if I'm not elected, and if Donald Trump or Republicans elected, your rights will be taken away. They try to make that case. It's really, really hard because Democrats do have control of everything, right? But I think it's more, more of an effective case if Biden is on the campaign trail ahead of 2024, making the case that he has stopped all of this from happening and now if he is taken out of office and Democrats do not win back the House or the Senate, whatever happens mm. after tomorrow mm. night, then this could end up being a problem and your rights will be taken away. Sochi, Kristen, Ron, Chris, thank you for spending this election mm. eve with Thanks me. For, I appreciate it's like it. It's Christmas Eve, kind of. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or New Year's Eve. Yeah. Any eve, really. <laughs> Deliberate attempts to spread disinformation will continue well after the votes are cast tomorrow. What to watch for in the coming days? We have that next. The next few days, you are going to see a deluge of election-related posts on social media. So how do you separate fact from deliberate attempts to confuse, distract, and scare you? Let's bring in CNN's Doni O'Sullivan with the answer here. Doni, there are different kinds of falsehoods that go viral on Election Day, we should be clear. So it's important to know the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, look, I mean, what we're going to see tomorrow, we have seen the past few uh, election days uh, over the past few years, is we're going to see, you know, there's people who are going to post, they might say they have some issue at the polls um, or with a machine, and that can get spun into um, something uh, nefarious. Um, that's, you know, when people post 
um, their own experience, but then also there's going to be a lot of posts out there of people deliberately creating content to try and undermine uh, your fate in American elections. And I want to show you an example from 2020. Um, a video went viral uh, that week that alleged to show ballots for Trump uh, being burned. Now, that was actually retweeted at the time by the then president's son, Eric Trump. Uh, it turned out to be totally false, totally bogus. CNN and many other outlets uh, were able to debunk it. Uh, but um, I want to show you a clip from uh, Harrisburg in Pennsylvania just a few days after the election in 2020 that really demonstrates just how quickly Election Day lies can spread. I've seen too much pieces of different evidence so far that shows that at this point I would be okay with a revote. Really? Yeah, absolutely. When you have video footage of people taking bags of ballots and showing that they are for Donald Trump and lighting them on fire. I helped write a fact check on CNN on, on that particular video. The election officials said that video has been going around for a few days. Uh, they are print-out ballots. They're not real ballots. You, so you use the information of the election officials. Somebody like me comes along, tries to research it, tries to fact-check it, and then I fact-check it, you'll come back and say, well, the election officials would say that. But wouldn't they, though? That's the thing, though. Question everything, right? Well, of course, that was November 2020, and it was kind of a, a sign of things to come in, in those coming months. But look, it ju does just show um, how effective misinformation and disinformation on election day can be. It sticks with people. Uh, so really just take your time as you're on social media tomorrow. Sure. So, so quickly, Donny, what should people be watching out for in the next few days? I think it's precisely videos like that, uh, videos that are designed uh, to enrage, um, but also, you know, videos that make you want to like it, make you want to retweet it. They are oftentimes the very videos that can end up uh, being bogus or false. And look, not all of it is just created by disinformation artists. Sometimes a confused voter can post an experience with a voting machine that can get spun uh, into all sorts of nefariousness. So uh, just be mindful of everything you see and uh, take a breath tomorrow. All right, Donny, thank you. Parts of Florida under a hurricane watch as voters head to the polls. What is in store for areas still recovering from Hurricane Ian? And we're back with a quick Election Day weather report. Voters in the key swing state of Nevada will get drenched tomorrow with several inches of snow forecast as well. While on the East Coast, Floridians bracing for another hurricane. Nicole moving towards the Sunshine State, expected to strengthen to a Category 1 when it makes landfall Wednesday. This, of course, after Hurricane Ian killed more than 100 people and obliterated parts of Florida. Be sure to tune in for CNN Tonight. Jake speaks with Josh Shapiro, the Democratic candidate for Pennsylvania governor. Also on the show, NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That is tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then join us tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern for the start of CNN's special live coverage of Election Night in America. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.